morning, church. Okay, so uh, this morning, I'm just going to jump straight in. We're going to be thinking together about Jesus' call to discipleship. That isn't a word that we hear that much outside the church, but it simply means becoming people who follow Jesus, who model their lives on him, who join their lives to his. And like everything that Jesus says, his teaching about discipleship is kind, it's perceptive, it's profoundly life-giving, and it can also be really difficult, really challenging, really uncomfortable. So buckle up. Here we go. Are you up for that? All right. So to give us some focus, um, we're just going to be unpacking one story. It's told in all of the synoptic gospels, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And all of these gospel writers tell the story of an encounter between Jesus and a rich man who was seeking truth about eternal life. We're not told the man's name, but he's most likely Jewish. Matthew also tells us that he's young, and Luke adds in that he's some kind of administrative uh, guy, but, but he's wealthy. I mean, he's dirty, stinking rich. And you put that all together, and on the outside, this guy seems to have it all. He's got it all together. He's somewhere between his 20s and early 40s. He probably has power, status, influence, everything that comes with wealth. And he's a respected member of the community. We would probably say he's living the Instagram dream, right? I always imagine he's got very good teeth and probably like slicked back hair with olive oil or something. But, but the questions that he asks Jesus reveal that he senses that despite everything, he's still missing something. And this is where we're going to hear from Matthew's gospel. So Millie, I gather you've been actively volunteered. Thank you very much. Do you want to come to a mic? Is that? Okay, so this is Matthew 19, if you want to follow along, 16 to 26. Thanks, Millie. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honour your mother and father, and love your neighbour as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What still do I lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Brilliant. Thank you, Millie. Okay, so... Here we go. I'm just going to pick up on three things. It's my Anglican background, three things. What does this story tell us, first, about how we can gain eternal life? Second, the best way that we can define ourselves as Christians, where's our identity? And third, as one practical follow-through, how following Jesus gives us a good relationship with money. And this last one is really important for us 
At this time in our society, we live in a capitalist society that's fed by social media and the internet. And, and we were talking in Connect Group this week about, is Joe here? Give us a wave. Hey, Joe. Um, about how you can start off doing a web search for something as innocuous as a replacement tent pole, and you end up wanting a holiday cottage. You know, because you just, you just get sucked in, don't you? And your greed grows and grows and grows. So it, it really speaks to us in our culture. It's really hard having a good relationship with money. There's a good challenge there. But we're going to start with his first point. The young man's opening question to Jesus, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus realizes that this very question, what must I do, reveals a wrong mindset. He's gone wrong already. Because his very way of phrasing the question betrays him. He's only thinking in terms of his own actions. He thinks he's capable of doing something to save himself. He thinks he can keep God's law perfectly. Now, at this point, we might expect Jesus to launch into a, a mini-sermon about, perhaps we might do that, about being saved by God's mercy and grace and the importance of faith, of believing that Jesus has done everything necessary to give us eternal life. But Jesus doesn't do that at least not at first, because he meets the young man where he is and he tries to open up the young man's understanding step by step. So when the young man asks, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Jesus' first step is to list five of the ten commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, etc., why did Jesus choose these five? Is he saying that the other five don't matter as much? Well, no. William Barclay, I always go to William Barclay, he points out that these laws all govern personal relationships. Okay. Well, that's confusing because the man's asked about eternal life with God. So why is Jesus asking about how he cares for other people? What's going on? Well, Jesus is homing in on how the man treats the people around him because he's starting the process of getting the rich man away from thinking about eternal life in terms of carefully calculating whether he's obeying God's commandments and starting to think about entering God's eternal life means sharing in the quality of God's life. And God's spirit lives in Jesus' followers. It's constantly drawing us into the life of God now. And we live in anticipation of that, obviously, happening perfectly after our death. But the great test of whether we're really enjoying eternal life now is the fruit in our lives. Are we reproducing God's attitude of care towards other people? We're not lying, we're not stealing, etc., etc. And the rich man, against that standard, insists that he's kept all of these five commandments. And legally, that might well be true. You know, he might not be doing a King David and, and sleeping with another man's wife, which is theft, and then having the husband murdered and then telling a whopping fib to cover it all up. He may not be doing that. He's kept the commandments. But Jesus, as we know, has a different standard. 
It's a higher standard. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus relates murder to its root in anger. And he relates adultery to its root in lust. Now, to be fair to the rich young man, he's got enough about him that he knows that what he's been doing so far hasn't got him peace with God. He knows that he's missing the mark. And so he says to Jesus, okay, I've met all those commandments. What else do I need to do? What do I still lack? And then Jesus goes for the jugular. This is it. He, he meets the man at his point of real need. His attitude to his wealth is the problem. He doesn't own stuff. His stuff owns him. And he needs to be set free from that. If, so Jesus says, if you want treasure in heaven to the man who is dirty, stinking rich, give up everything that you have and follow me. And Jesus' test holds up a mirror, not just to the young man, but also us. The fact that the man is unwilling to give up his riches, well, that means he loves his wealth more than he loves God. And that means he's broken the first commandment. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods but me. The man wants to do something to gain eternal life, but as it turns out, he can't be saved by his actions alone because none of us can. He can't be saved by keeping God's law perfectly because none of us can. And so Jesus asks the rich man, about keeping God's commandments in order to open up this truth. We cannot meet all of God's standards. We cannot save ourselves. Now, when Jesus says, go, sell your possessions, give everything to the poor, we immediately get very worried, don't we? Because we think it means it's wrong to be wealthy, it's wrong to be comfortable, it's wrong to be good financial planners. And we kind of have this lurking feeling that if we've got cash in the bank, we should feel horribly guilty, perhaps even afraid for our salvation, because only poor people get into heaven. Now, given that this is the only time that Jesus is recorded giving this command, sell everything, and he spoke to plenty of rich people, this is the only time he gives this command, we should probably see this teaching as something specific to this man and his needs. We don't need to all sell up and take oaths of poverty, okay? But if that makes us go, whew, I get to keep it. Wow, narrow escape. Well, that reaction's very telling because it suggests that we're worried by the thought that Jesus might ask us to give up everything. Are we just like the rich man? Are we feeling possessive about what we have? Are we, just like the rich man, feeling scared that Jesus might ask us to do something that will cost us? But this is Jesus we're talking about. What, what are we afraid of? Why are we scared of what he's going to ask us to do? We know it's only ever going to be for our best. So why do we have that reaction? It's because we're not fully surrendered. And the need for us all to be good disciples of Jesus is something that he speaks about all the time. It's utterly consistent throughout the Gospels. This is Luke chapter 14. In this, this is Jesus. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. 
Luke chapter 17, whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. So we may not be required to live in poverty. Some people are, but not everybody. But we are all required to be all in, whatever that looks like for each one of us. Second thing to pull out, what's the best way to define ourselves as Christians? Where's our identity? Well, this all revolves around Jesus' command, come follow me, to the rich young man. And Jesus is inviting this guy to place Jesus, not wealth, not status, not power, not any kind of other security, place Jesus at the core of our being. And that's a complete head spin for the young man, because who he is, is completely bound up with what he has. And it's such an easy trap to fall into, isn't it? We can probably all think of things that we would struggle to give up if Jesus asked us to. You know, our shoe collection. I I know people like that. Our retirement pot. Yikes. Our housing deposit. Our career dreams. Our popularity, our safety. As I speak right now, there's probably dying for their, somebody in this world dying for their faith in Jesus. But even thinking about letting go of these things is enough to make us feel wobbly. Because if I haven't got that, then who am I? If I can't do that, then who am I? But for Christians, there's only one way to define ourselves. We don't have what's called an exterior locus of identity. It's interior. We are Christ-centered people. And that's so important for our culture at this time that is massively confused about where identity, true identity, can be found. The gospel is that it's not something we construct, it's not something we choose, it's something we're given. That's the glorious truth. We are given a Christ-centered identity. And the thing is, when Jesus is right at the heart of who we are, that's when it becomes possible to give up anything for him. But Jesus' invitation, come follow me, give up everything, that's too demanding for the young man. He goes away sad. The Greek word that's used here, that's translated as sad, it actually translates better as grieved. It's the same Greek word that's used when Jesus is, is in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's in such great distress that he's, he's almost sweating blood. The young man's heart is torn. He's devastated. He wants eternal life, but he wants his money more. He wants eternal life, but he doesn't want to let go of the things that he thinks define him. He encounters Jesus, but he walks away. And Jesus lets him go. And as the young man leaves, Jesus uses something called hyperbole or exaggeration to reinforce to the people around him, what he's been trying to get across. He says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, it's impossible. Now again, there's no automatic link between bank accounts and entry to heaven. But to really get at what Jesus is saying here, we have to know that in Jesus' time and in Jesus' culture, there was a link between bank accounts and salvation. Wealth was seen as proof of God's approval. So rich people 
were believed to be the most likely candidates for heaven. And Jesus drives a bus through that idea. It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. So the disciples are rightly astonished. Jesus is just so countercultural back then and now. So they say, who, who can be saved then? You know, if the rich aren't saved, what, help, what hope is there for anybody else? And Jesus' answer is foundational to the gospel. With God, all things are possible. You can't get to heaven under your own steam. It doesn't matter how much money you have or don't have. Only God can make a way for you to be saved. Whereas the rich young man wanted to earn his way into heaven without handing over his life, Jesus is the way to heaven because he handed over his own life on the cross. And crucially, he rose to new life three days later. And for Christians, it's sharing in that resurrection life that saves us and defines us. That's our source of our identity. We're not defined by our mistakes or our regrets, or, although they can be powerful. They can be overwhelming. It's not what defines us. It's not what we have. It's not what we don't have. It's not what we've achieved. Only God gets to tell us who we are. And he says, you are my beloved children. You are made in my image. I'm going to run to meet you if you're lost. So finally, what positive difference does being Christ-centered make to my life when it comes to money? Three quick things. And by the way, none of them are to do with God giving us money and making life lovely and comfortable if we follow him. That kind of transaction. That's called the prosperity gospel. And it's a load of doohickey. Okay? If you ever hear it from anywhere, I want you to forget that you're British and that you're polite. And I want you to go boo. Okay? We're not in the world of prosperity gospel here, but there are three very important real things that we can say here. First of all, Jesus sets us free to be grateful because we know from James that every perfect gift is from him. And money is a good gift because it can bring about good things. You know, it can feed the hungry. It can fight injustice. It can take medical supplies to Ukraine, okay? It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. That's where the rich young man went wrong. He loved his money. But money itself can do good things. We've got to be grateful for it. Second, trusting Jesus to take care of us loosens our grip on our money. We're enabled to be more generous. And actually, this in turn makes us happier because generosity has been proven to raise your levels of emotional well-being. And that's, that's, I mean, it's in scientific peer-reviewed journals. Um, giving to other people activates an area of the brain linked to the contentment and reward cycle. So giving to other people literally makes you feel great. That's not why you should do it, because if you do it for that reason, you just come back to being selfish. But it is a nice side effect, okay? And finally... Jesus' relationship to our money. Jesus helps us to be grounded 
when things aren't going so well. Money can be lost, sometimes overnight. But when Jesus is the bedrock of our lives, our sense of who we are, our identity, that holds steady, no matter what circumstances we're in. You know, that's not kind of diminishing or saying you shouldn't worry about not being able to pay the mortgage or the rent or finding money for the kids' school uniforms in September. You know, if that's you this morning, first of all, I'm so sorry. Second, talk to your family here about that. And third, stay grounded in Jesus. Think of, think of his word picture about two people who both heard his words. One person didn't act on Jesus' words. He built his house on sand. And when the storms came, his house got washed away. But the other man did act on Jesus' words. He built his house on rock. And when the storms came, his house still stood. And it's when we act on Jesus' words, it's when we trust that he cares for us abundantly, it's when we choose to continue to live, to live generously, even when that's hard. It's when we look to him to define us rather than anything else. That's when our lives have a firm foundation. We still experience the storm. In the parable, the storm came to everybody. Nobody escapes storms in this life. But if we're grounded in Jesus, we can hold firm. I'm reminded of what St. Paul said in, in 2 Corinthians. He wrote, and this is St. Paul, guys, okay? He says, we're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. That can be us. But how's it possible? Romans 8, 11, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you. Now, when we're really familiar with verses, it's easier to just skip it over. So I'm going to add a little bit in. The Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the freaking dead, lives in you. That's the power that God has given us. That's the power that's available to us, to be grounded in Jesus no matter what. And that changes everything, including our attitude to money. But the rich man didn't understand any of this. He was cash rich, but spiritually bankrupt. Because we know that he defined himself in the wrong way. My identity is in what I have. As far as we know from the New Testament, he wasn't saved in the end. And he missed out in his life about how could actually God could bless him through his money. But you know what? Thanks to God, who in Christ Jesus gives us his victory, he can do the impossible. He can put a camel through the eye of a needle. He can save us. His arm is not too short to save. He wants us to be defined by our relationship with him. He wants to bless us with the right relationship to money. And by his spirit living in us, we can be empowered to become grateful, generous, and grounded people. Amen.